May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known upon earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has blessed us. May God continue to bless us. Let all ends of the earth revere him. And now we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 6, um, starting at verse 5, which is on page 787. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is, in se- who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. One of the core convictions of our culture uh, is that there are facts and there are values. Uh, There is truth and there is opinion, there is science and there is speculation. And the uh, the point of making this distinction and insisting on it so kind of powerfully and relentlessly is actually a pretty noble kind of cause. It's, it's, it's a strategy designed to achieve what is really a quite good end, and that is this. This is how we think people who have differences can get along with each other. You, you see, you, you look back in history, and particularly look back in the history of Europe, and you find that people have deep differences and tended to express those differences in terrible ways. And in fact, we see that in the world around us today, don't we? The kind of terrible violence, especially around ideology or religion. People have differences and the way they express those differences is by insisting on them and fighting about them. And our culture takes an approach that says we've got to get past that. We've got to find a way out of that kind of bind. And you can see how it works. It says that the things that are really important are facts, science. That's where truth is, and because those things are objectively true, facts, only people who are mad or bad, deluded or deceptive, would ever disagree on those things. In other words, at the level of facts, we all get along with each other because we're the same. 
On the other hand, when it comes to the things that we have differences on, namely values, well, uh, those things might be important to, to you or might be important to me or to him or to her, to any particular person, values might be important. But, but the key is that we all agree together that they aren't important in any universal way. Everyone's entitled to their view on those things, yes. And the only rule is, don't try to make someone else have your values. Now, as I say, I, I think that this is trying to achieve a noble outcome. Isn't it? Wouldn't, it's a much better world if instead of people fighting about their differences, they just learn to agree to disagree, right? That's the kind of world, actually, we pretty much all want to live in. People who are obviously different from one another, even passionately different from one another, can get along because they all agree that the things that they differ on aren't of first importance, and the things that are of first importance well, they'll necessarily all agree on because after all, who can disagree with someone in a white lab coat? And so we all agree on that stuff. So it's a noble cause. It's, it's, it's actually a pretty, you know, solid effort. Except it turns out to be a completely ridiculous strategy, not least because it's so obviously self-contradictory. You don't have to think about it very hard, do you, to realise why it can't possibly work. The fundamental assertion that underlies it is that the important things happen to coincide with what's scientifically provable and the unimportant things just happen to coincide with values. But of course, that assumption is completely non-scientific. So it's actually deeply self-refuting. Despite that, and you don't have to be a you know, rocket scientist to see that, despite that, it remains one of the most significant operating assumptions of our society. And it is why Christianity is increasingly not just disbelieved in our culture, but actively hated. It's for this reason, actually. For this reason. Because Jesus was absolutely convinced that that assumption is hopelessly wrong and he constantly spoke in that way. That's why he rubs against the grain of so many people. And you can see it right here in the Sermon on the Mount and specifically on the topic of prayer. You see, in, in our culture, prayer, I mean, of all things, for goodness sake, prayer, an aspect of spirituality, prayer falls fair and square into the value category, the non-truth, non-right and wrong category. That's where prayer is, for goodness sake, isn't it? It's one of those things that is, uh, I think, in many different forms, recognized as uh, actually increasingly helpful to people. Uh, that's why this week in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, there was an article uh, entitled, Why All Men Should Do Yoga. It's like, well, because it's going to help you and you're more chilled and more relaxed and get in touch with your inner self. And just, but, but, but not as a, like a, just as a value. But for goodness sake... Don't even think about putting prayer into the truth category so that there are right ways to pray and wrong ways to pray. 
But of course, that's exactly what Jesus does. Verse 5, when you pray, do not be like. Or verse 7, when you pray, do not. Or again, verse 8, do not be like them. And instead, verse 9, he says, pray then like this. Pray then in this way. For Jesus, there is a right way to pray and there are wrong ways to pray and that matters massively. And so as we, um, as we come to this final time, as Fiona mentioned, in our integrated series on prayer, where we have, with those first disciples, been asking Jesus to teach us to pray, uh, this evening we come to the great prayer, to that moment in the Gospels where Jesus explicitly and methodically and I would suggest radically teaches us what prayer is and what to do when we pray. And we're going to take Jesus at his word very straightforwardly. We're opening up very simply under two headings. You see there uh, the, the wrong way to pray, technical prayer, and then the right way to pray, true prayer. So first then, technical prayer. Now, I mean technical in both senses of that word. On the one hand, Jesus is, is absolutely straightforward about the fact that there are some ways to approach God which are spiritual, which are rich towards God in name only. They're sort of only technically prayer. It's really something else. In fact, those kinds of prayer horribly miss the mark. And the reason they miss the mark is that they constitute a kind of praying that is, and this is my second sense of technical, a kind of praying that is a technique for something else. It's prayer, but it's prayer not to get God, but to use God to get some other thing. Okay? Prayer as technique. And there are two kinds. Jesus highlights two things. Firstly, prayer to be seen by others. Verse 5, And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their rewards. And now, when we hear about um, people standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, I think what always comes to mind, and actually this pretty much came to mind for me uh, until I was doing some research this week, it's kind of those nutters. You know those people that in the city and they've got these like A-frame boards on and they spend their whole time kind of ranting at people and they're really angry and you wonder how much the love of God has really gotten a grip of their soul because they just seem really cranky all the time. Uh, and they're on the street corner, you see, and, and that's what I tend to think, but I don't think that's what Jesus has got in mind at all. Uh, Jesus says, uh, notice, that uh, it's people who pray in the way that he's going to criticise, the way he's going to speak about, in the synagogues and on the street corners. The, the, two, the two form a kind of a pair together, and what Jesus has in mind, I think, is both um, what you might call regular worship and civic worship. The, the, the synagogue was where the regular worship services were held and the street corner was a way of referring to the public square in a town where in a religious society there would often be kind of great gatherings for worship of the whole community that, that didn't fit into the building. So there's, it, this is just public occasions for prayer, whether it's in the synagogue or it's in the town square whether it's a regular religious service or whether it's a civic service. 
you know, like a kind of um, great you know, celebration. And the point is that the prayer that Jesus has in mind is actually for another purpose. Notice what Jesus says is the reason that these prayers are prayed. It's to be seen by others. Here is prayer on formal public occasions as a way of fitting in with society, a kind of cultural expression of religiosity because that's how we do things in our society. That's how you show that you belong. That's how you can be seen by others to be noticed as being one of us. But the key is that when you're doing that, the one thing that you're not doing is relating to God. You're relating to your social and cultural environment and you're just pretending to relate to God. With one eye on who else is there and whether or not they're noticing you. It's not truly prayer because you're just using God for something else. There's no actual friendship with God in this prayer. It's just a technique for something else. Now, of course, intrinsically wrong with praying in public it's uh, commanded and commended in the bible uh, we do it every week uh, in our services here together and, and we're going to do it later on tonight so, so how do you tell the difference between whether it's right or wrong and jesus gives us the answer he says if a person only prays in public if they only do their religious thing when other people can see them then that means pretty decisively that there's nothing of any real spiritual significance going on. Verse 6, But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You, you see what Jesus says? It's what you do in private precisely when there is no possibility of any other kind of reward. When no one can see you and no one can think well of you and no one can praise you except one person. The living and true God, your Father. That is the measure of your praying. Then it's clear what is at the heart of this prayer to God. And Jesus is really fierce about it. If there's never any closed door, no one seeing prayer, then Jesus calls it the most kind of damning thing that he can. He says it's religious hypocrisy. It's really interesting. When, when you think of religious hypocrite, when our society thinks of religious hypocrite, typically what they'll think of is when a person does external things badly. They say they're a Christian person and they steal money from the company. They say they're a Christian person and they commit adultery or something like that. The, the gross public things. And, and what's more, those, I'm not, those things are bad, right? But, but Jesus is so interesting. When he wants to really dig into just the, the, the black heart of religious hypocrisy, he doesn't talk about the grand big public things. He talks about the private things of the heart. 
do you go into your room and close the door? And I mean, not literally, I don't mind. The door's a little bit open, that's okay. Right. And, and literally, the word is not room, it's closet. So you're actually supposed to be in you know, your broom closet, like Harry Potter. It, the, the details are not the point. The point is, that's when you know you're not doing it to be seen. That's when praying is not a technique to get something else because all you get in that kind of prayer is God. Well, that's the first way to pray wrongly. You see see what Jesus is saying? There's wrong prayer. Better not to pray at all than to pray like this. But there's a second kind of way to pray wrongly. If the first kind of prayer is about religious hypocrisy, this second kind of wrong prayer is about pagan manipulation. Verse 7, when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Uh, this, this word, heap up empty phrases, it's a really interesting word. It's one of those words that's made up by putting other words together. Um, and it's actually unique in all of Greek literature. Uh, it means something like praying with intense, torrential outpouring of words, a kind of frantic, focused speech. And Jesus explains why someone might pray like this. They think that they will be heard because of their many words. They think that this kind of praying means that they'll get heard. Now, you may have heard this kind of slightly smug Christian comment, there are no atheists in foxholes. Have you ever heard that, that same? This, this idea that you know, when you're in the middle of a war and there's bullets flying everywhere... No one's having interesting philosophy. Everyone gets that there's a God and there's meaning to life and wants to stay alive. And it reflects the fact, as we saw last week, uh, that when um, surveys are done, it actually turns out that really a great number of committedly non-religious people, in fact, pray and pray regularly, even atheists. There really is a kind of involuntary reflex of the heart in extreme circumstances that cries out to a higher power to make things right. Turns out that we simply can't not pray. And actually, this, this idea that Jesus has, this concept of a kind of intense torrent of words in desperate times or in great distress, um, is, is pretty accurate, don't you think? I mean, can, can you imagine that the, a person for whom the, their, their daughter or son is in great danger, God, give me my daughter back, please, make her safe, make her well. Make the diagnosis not terrible. There's a desperation about this prayer. <laughs> Often a huge outpouring of words. And a kind of underlying view that the intensity of their need and the intensity of their words might just have an impact on the likelihood of an answer. And Jesus says this too is a wrong form of prayer. This too is prayer as technique. They think they will be heard for their many words. People who pray like this, Jesus is saying, have a goal in mind. They know what they want and they're determined to get it. And if torrential praying will help, then that's what they'll do. You can see it's just another version of technique prayer using God to get something that to the person is more important than God. And that's why I'm willing to use him. 
That's why he must hear me. In other words, if there's no friendship with God in the religious hypocrite prayer, there is no lordship of God in the pagan manipulation prayer, do you see? And the point is that it is precisely these two things, deep, intimate friendship with the living and true Lord that characterises true prayer. You see it in the prayer that Jesus goes on to teach his disciples, verse 9. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what's so interesting about this prayer, which Jesus says, if you're going to pray, if you're going to do true prayer, if you're going to do prayer that's not just a technique for something else, if you're going to actually pray that really is praying, what's so interesting is that in the first half of what Jesus teaches us, there is precisely nothing to do with our needs. I mean, it sort of stands out as obvious, doesn't it? There's, there's nothing about the strength I need to meet the challenges of my life. There's nothing about daily bread. There's nothing about my situation. There's nothing about the problems in my life. There's nothing even about the good things in my life. It's just not about me. Which, which kind of leads you to ask, what is it about? I mean, what, what actually is being prayed here? And what Jesus is teaching us, well, actually, he's more than teaching us, he's, he's working on us. He's, he's needing something into our souls. Because what this prayer is doing is enjoying and noticing and fundamentally reorienting my life around someone else than me. my Father in heaven. Hear the intimacy of that address, our Father. And the point is this, you see, before you ask for anything, the primary goal of prayer, the very first thing you ask for, Jesus teaches us, has to be Him. Here is prayer as friendship with God. Before you ask for anything else, God says, Ask for me. That's true prayer. For the simple reason that it is not me that stands at the centre of the universe, not even at the centre of my universe, but God. And Jesus says it's not spiritually safe for you to ask for anything else until you've asked for his friendship for connection at a heart level, a deep knowing of God in your soul, getting God for God's sake, not getting God so that others will think you're pretty impressive. But similarly, in, in, if the first part of prayer is this friendship 
with God. The second part of prayer is the lordship of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Hallowed be your name. Now, what's so, I think, deeply challenging about this is how it really undermines what we tend to think our basic problems are. Uh, We think that our basic problems are the problems of daily bread, our circumstances, our lacks, our needs. And, And when they're overwhelming, and it might be that you've had an experience of kind of overwhelming need, there's been those moments where you just think you you can't cope. Uh, For most of the time, that's not the case, actually, is it? For most of the time, that sort of um, provision of our needs is so constant and so regular and and so many people make it work for us that that we don't really kind of feel it that acutely. But when it strikes, then what comes out of our hearts so often is a torrent of words towards God, sometimes not even articulated, demanding to be heard. It's why... Prayer can so often kind of slip into, just just sort of slip down into becoming basically a shopping list of our needs. And when that's the case, there's absolutely no peace in praying, actually. You just feel worse, more anxious, because all you've really done is rehearse your problems. And Jesus says, before you ask for things... Take yourself out of the place of God. You see, until you pray like this, the natural stance of your heart is to say, my kingdom come. My will be done. Do do you know yourself well enough? Do you know the contours of your own heart, the desires, to have recognised the particular ways in which that mantra of your heart is so powerfully driving in your life. My kingdom come. My will be done. And when that's the case, so often our prayers are not much more than the verbalisation of that heart mantra. Let me tell you, Lord, about my kingdom, which I want you to make come. And let me tell you, Lord, about my will, which I want you to see done. And the truth is that that is precisely the source of our deepest problems. All the deepest problems in your life, the real challenges that you have, the reason things mess up is very simply because you are not up to the task of being the Lord of your life. It's it's above your competence. I don't know if you've ever been asked to do something that's that's beyond your competence. Um, It's it's a dreadful feeling of inevitable inadequacy. And that's nothing compared to the infinite incompetence that each one of us has to run our own lives. We do a terrible job of it. We get anxious and resentful and fearful and proud. 
because we're convinced that we know how things ought to go and we know what consequences should flow for people but we're not up to the task of making it happen and so we suffer or we find a way to bludgeon it into happening and then we become unspeakably, unsufferably puffed up. Don't you see? Jesus says true prayer begins in friendship with God, an experience of the closeness of his fatherhood. And then it continues in the lordship of God, knowing that he is God and you are not. And it's only when we heal our hearts in the first half of the Lord's Prayer that we can move to the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Do you, do you see the structure? I mean, it's obvious when it's pointed out. Um, your, your, your is the repeated focus of the first half. And when you've healed your heart in the friendship and lordship of the Father, then you can move on to our, our, our. Our daily bread. Our sins. Our temptations and sufferings. And, and the reason is clear, isn't it? Um, he is one who is so intimately concerned for you and so infinitely wise and powerful to guide and lead you that when you know that, it means that when you pray for your daily bread and in regard to your sins and about your difficulties, your prayer will be for his sake and not for yours. Your prayer will be for his glory and not for yours. Your prayer will be for his praise and not for yours. And so when you've prayed the first half of the Lord's, I mean, not just muttered the words, actually prayed them, then there is nothing you can't ask him for. It's down to as tiny as your daily bread. And there's nothing you can't confess openly to him. And there is no painful and difficult circumstance which tempts you to compromise on your discipleship that you can't bring to him. Do, do you see what the Lord's Prayer is supposed to do to you? That's why Jesus taught you to pray like this. The, the joy in it, the power in it, the humility of it to be the kind of person who will relate to their daily needs and their dreadful sins and their difficult circumstances with this kind of poise and grace and hope. That's true prayer, says Jesus. Well, how do we pray like this? I mean, I, I feel this, I read this, I, I say these things and I, I preach to myself. This is, this is out in front of me. How can we know him that intimately? How can we trust him that completely? And friends, the key is this. This is, this is revolutionary, actually. Jesus prayed his own prayer. 
Jesus prayed his own prayer. The prayer won't really form and shape us the way it can and ought until we see that Jesus didn't just teach us to pray. He actually practiced what he preached and he prayed exactly like this as he died. If it wasn't so familiar, I think we'd be struck uh, more by it. Uh, It's only in the Christian gospel that God is not only the one to whom we pray, right? That's kind of obvious, but also one who prays. The Son prays to the Father. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that the cup would pass from him, that he would be spared the ordeal that he knew all too well lay ahead. But that wasn't the end of his prayer, was it? You remember how it went? Nevertheless, Jesus said, yet your will be done on earth right now, in my life, this night, as it is in heaven. Your will be done. You think it was accidental that that's what Jesus prayed in the garden? He prayed this prayer. How will we ever have the power to know God this intimately and trust him this completely so to re- as to really pray, uh, pre- to really have prayer in our lives like the Lord pray- Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray? It's because God himself in the person of his son became a weak and needy person. He became a person whose daily bread was far more precarious than ours is. He became a person whose mission it was to bear the sins of the whole world to hell, who faced temptations beyond anything that we can imagine. And he prayed his own prayer, and he did it for our sake. Thy will be done. And he prayed it for us to secure our eternal bread, the bread of heaven, and to bear our sins and to deliver us ultimately and utterly from evil. He prayed this prayer for us. He knows what it's like to pray like this. He saved us because his prayer was this prayer. And when you grasp that in your heart, when you know it with a sense of its reality upon your soul, when you see him saying, your will be done for your sake, then you will be able to pray the same prayer as well. You'll be able to say, your will be done for your sake. You can know him and you can trust him, the high and holy God, because he was down here in the dust with us and he had to pray and wrestle like this. And if he took that great cup for me, then I can take my little cups for him. And if he did not succumb to temptation in that great test for me, then I can resist temptation in my little tests for him. You see, when, when we know the one who prayed his own prayer, 
all the way to the cross. It will enable us to enter into this prayer ourselves and have it form us and change us forever. Lord Jesus Christ, teach us to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer now and then as we've done at the end of each of these addresses, um, we're going to have an opportunity to kind of do some work on our hearts to just create a bit of space uh, for reflection, to not move on, to not rush on to the next thing so quickly, um, but just allow uh, a time, a moment of openness, uh, of vulnerability to the Lord, uh, to, to shape us, to um, train us and teach us and correct us and rebuke us, and uh, to make us uh, the kind of people who pray this prayer, not pray some other way. So join with me in prayer and uh, the team's going to come and sing to us. That version of the Lord's Prayer, actually. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, to you we lift up our hearts. That you answer us when we call out to you to teach us to pray. We long to be as joyful, as hopeful, as holy and obedient as you call us to be by praying this prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Spirit you would do whatever is needed in our lives. To shake us out of complacency or to humble us out of pride. Or to fill us with confidence and hope. Whatever it is that we need, you know, do a great work in us that we would be a praying people. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.